You're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, which you can also access in text form at cortezcurrents.ca. Coastal BC communities in the last few years have experienced gentrification, housing market inflation, and the collapse or downscaling of resource extraction industries. At the same time, an increase in the number of derelict small craft and full-time liveaboards has generated public attention and concern. These issues continue to affect Cortez Island. See, for example, Current's recent coverage of the garbage disposal issue on our public docks. Every winter, derelict boats go ashore and make the local news. Increasingly, marinas and municipalities are imposing restrictions on liveaboards, charging steep liveaboard fees, or announcing outright bans on living aboard. We now reissue for radio a Currents article from the spring of 2020, Vessels of Concern, Signs of the Times, in which we dig a little deeper into the derelict boats problem and the ways in which all these issues are interconnected. Until the end of the 1990s on the coast of B.C., a good, sound cruising or fishing boat was often worth more than a house. No exaggeration. More than one sailor or builder established him or herself ashore by selling just one boat and buying a house and land with the proceeds. Winston Bushnell, for one, sold his 31-foot Dove One after his family's circumnavigation, and with the proceeds, he bought a house in Nanaimo. In 2001, John Knoll sold his hand-built 40-foot schooner Tiger for enough money also to purchase a house in Nanaimo and move ashore. In those days, there wasn't a major derelict boat problem. People who owned boats fell into three categories, fishermen, affluent dilettante boaters, and serious cruising sailors. This last group was not necessarily wealthy, but pretty much all the wealth they did possess was invested in the boat. Almost everyone kept their boats in marinas during the off-season. A handful of hardy, adventurous souls lived aboard year-round, some in marinas, some anchored in harbors and bays, which back then were relaxed and uncrowded. Moorage at the time was less than $3 per foot per month. It was affordable to keep your boat in a safe place, and the boat was very valuable and worth maintaining. Its resale value was high. Nevertheless, the wave of post-war prosperity and expansion of the upper middle class in North America meant that a lot more people could afford a boat. The marina and boatyard trade was booming. Great times. Boats did come to grief. They sank or ended up on a beach somewhere. But the attrition back then was happening mostly among older fishing boats and classic yachts made of wood. And over the decades, they quietly composted away. On Manson's Lagoon Beach, you can still see the stem and top of the engine block from a wreck buried in the sand. At Squirrel Cove, an old minesweeper that was quite conspicuously boat-shaped as late as 2009 is now just an indeterminate mound of rust and rotten wood. But the next generation of boats, those valuable sail and power vessels active in the 70s built since the early 60s, they tended more and more to be made of GRP, fiberglass. GRP means glass, reinforced, plastic. They were more affordable than handmade wooden boats, so the GRP revolution also expanded boat ownership. But plastic, as we know to our cost, is forever. 
They last and last and last. They don't quietly compost away. Huge numbers of them were built during the boating boom. What would happen to them all? Fast forward to the late 90s. Times have changed. A feverish real estate boom transformed BC as the 21st century began. Starting around 2000, the value of land and houses skyrocketed. As a side effect of ballistic real estate valuations, the price of moorage doubled and doubled again, reaching as high as $12.50 per foot per month in Vancouver in 2015. Fewer and fewer people could pay that kind of money just to store a boat. Overcapitalization and the fishing gold rush of the 80s and 90s ended up killing off not only the fish stocks, but inevitably the fleet. Government buybacks in the 2000s to reduce the number of licenses squeezed the fishing fleet down from 6,000 or more smallish family-owned boats to less than 2,000 larger, more mechanized, more productive, that is, aggressive, fish killers. The price of licenses rose even faster than real estate. Plenty of de-licensed fish boats were for sale as fishermen cashed out and retired in comfort. Meanwhile, an aging fleet of race boats was retiring also, and a generation of cruisers were getting old and selling the boat unless their kids wanted it and could afford the moorage. Local amateur racing itself was in decline with reduced membership in youth sailing programs. As a result, the market in used boats began to collapse. With a glut of beater race boats and decent older cruising yachts for sale, old fish boats being dumped and moorage rates at an all-time high, resale values plummeted. For many owners, the yearly cost of moorage began to equal or even exceed the value of the boat itself. At the same time, increasing inequity, particularly in the U.S., but also in Canada from the mid-'80s to the present day, shrank the ranks of the middle class while increasing the number of one-percenters. The demographics of boat ownership were changing, tilting towards the superyacht and the megayacht class and away from the old family cruiser racer. The offshoring and financialization that so enriched those one-percenters, along with the overexploitation that decimated BC's fish stocks and forests, shrank the job market. For a couple of decades, wages were stagnant. In 1970, it was very easy for any able-bodied person to get a job and an affordable rental to live in. But by 1990, both jobs and housing were getting harder to find, and homelessness became a visible and permanent feature of urban and suburban areas. In the 1970s, homeless people were rare, and a lot of people had never heard of a food bank. But the 80s crash introduced food banks, and by the 2000s, permanent homeless encampments were established in Victoria and Nanaimo. By the early 90s, not coincidentally, a new trend had appeared. People who were not sailors and had little boating history were buying old vessels to live on because they could not afford any other form of housing. As long as marina rates stayed somewhat affordable, this was a workable strategy. And the marina trash, as some people called them, were actually an asset to many facilities. Divorced men, struggling students, single moms, young families, there were all kinds of people living on boats for all kinds of reasons other than cruising. Some did dream of going sailing when they had saved up enough money, but others were content to use their boat as a float house and settle for years in one marina. But moorage rates were rising. 
Some of the more indigent, hardy, or seamen-like liveaboards then moved out to join the hardcore cruisers at anchor in every available bay. So, however, did the unattended boats of people who simply could no longer afford the marina rates but didn't want to give up their summer boating fun. Suddenly, anchorages like Silva Bay, most of which was clear in 1970, were choked with private moorings, leaving almost no room for floatplanes to land and only marginal, sketchy locations for visiting boats to anchor. The rise in property values had another inevitable impact, gentrification. Waterfront areas were developed by condo speculators, and the new residents were not sympathetic to industrial or maritime activity. They also didn't like looking out their million-dollar condos and seeing shabby boat people hanging laundry out to dry at anchor. Why should those losers enjoy the same million-dollar view without paying the going rate? So liveaboards, like nomads everywhere in history, were distrusted, sometimes envied, sometimes feared by settled landlubbers. And a building pressure came on local governments to get rid of those people. But are liveaboards an eyesore or an asset? Older and wiser marina owners knew that liveaboards are actually an asset. They kept an eye on everyone's boats, not just their own. I myself lived aboard for several years on the Nanaimo waterfront, and I can vividly remember the afternoon when a boat in a neighboring marina caught fire and exploded its propane tank. It lit up nearby boats, and the prevailing wind pushed the burning vessels down onto our floats. It was the liveaboards who instantly rallied to fight the fire, to fend off the burning boats, and they held the fort for over ten minutes before the official fire department arrived. If no liveaboards had been present, tens more boats would have been lost, and mine would have been one of them. Nevertheless, the campaign to ban liveaboards got traction. They were accused, among other things, of posing a fiscal hazard to other boats because of having no insurance. Most of them couldn't afford the very high premiums for marine insurance, and many of their boats wouldn't pass the underwriter's very stringent requirements. But on the other hand, many liveaboards took better care of their boats and were less likely to have dangerous accidents than absentee owners who didn't visit their boats for months at a time. The wave of gentrification and the eviction of liveaboards spread inexorably from south to north. French Creek, then Victoria, Ladysmith, even Ford Cove. One after another, gentrified waterfronts kicked out their liveaboards, and so they moved north in search of someplace safe to live. The wave of evicted liveaboards and the wave of devalued, cheap old boats has reached Cortez Island. We're not immune from the storms of history and economics in the bigger world. The ripples just reach us a little later. The post-war economic boom and the brief period of increased equity and opportunity meant that lots of boats were built. They were always an affluent person's hobby, but no longer strictly reserved for the very upper crust. Affluence had been somewhat democratized, so lots and lots of boats were built, while petrochemicals were cheap. That's one reason why fiberglass hulls from the 60s are so massively overbuilt. A drum of resin just didn't cost that much back then. The thing about boats, though, is that they have a life cycle just like cars. Most boats have more than one owner in their long lives, the first owner usually has money and takes good care of the boat, which isn't that hard to do because the boat is still young. But boats age, just like houses and cars. 
Steel ones rust, wooden ones rot, plastic ones last longer, but they all wear out their engines and their rigging and their hatches and so forth. And as they age, it costs more to keep them up. At some point, the first owner gets bored or tired or old or just wants a spiffier boat or a bigger boat, and now the second owner takes over. Now, the second owner probably still pays quite a bit for the boat, but it's a deal compared to a new boat. It gets reasonable care for a while, but eventually this owner also will get tired of repairs or through age or illness or a change of life will pass it on to someone else. And so the boat continues from owner to owner and usually going down the food chain, gradually losing value, unless someone does a major refit at great expense along the way. Unlike cars, boats are not easily recyclable for scrap metal. You can't just smash them into cubes and send them off to be rendered down. No tow truck will come and take them away. So as they get older and more sketchy, they just get cheaper and they find more marginal places to park. And as they get cheaper, as their value declines, the people who buy them are less and less able to undertake the ever-increasing maintenance and moorage costs. The old saying about free lunches is even more applicable to free boats. There really ain't no such thing. If a boat's being sold super cheap, it's probably a hot potato, and someone is very eager to get rid of it for very good reasons. At the end of the line, the boat has gone so far downhill that it looks obviously derelict. The last owner usually abandons it, either skipping town without paying the moorage due, every marina has a few of these, or maybe leaving it on an anchor or a mooring somewhere and disappearing. It is tempting to accuse these last owners of irresponsibility, but we have to remember what responsible disposal of a boat costs. $10,000 is a conservative estimate for the officially sanctioned disposal of a derelict. Very few last owners have ten grand in their pockets. If they did, they wouldn't be buying these old wrecks. So towards the end of its life, the boat has negative value. Its moorage costs and the cost of maintenance far outweigh its notional value. Unless it's a classic with a magic name, or the owner is handy and has the spare time to do the upkeep him or herself, it becomes simply a drain on someone's already slender resources. So one fine day, it either mysteriously catches fire, financial combustion, or sinks in deep water one dark night, or is just left to its fate while the last owner moves on in search of work, food, or salvation. We have no real solution to this problem because we never planned ahead back in the exuberant 60s and 70s. We never thought, what are we going to do with all these boats when they get old and no one wants them? Back then, they were valuable. No one would have predicted then that a day would come when real estate would be worth fortunes and fiberglass yachts would be sold for five bucks just to get rid of them. There was no end-of-life plan for these boats, just like there was no end-of-life plan for the abandoned salmon feedlots that litter our coast or the collapsing canneries and piers from 60 years ago. The corporate owners have moved on, leaving their trash behind. And now it's everyone's problem. So here we are. A whole generation of good old boats is reaching the end of their lives. As fuel costs increase, we can expect even more derelicts in the cabin cruiser class, gas engine monsters that no one can afford to feed anymore. 
And if current economic trends continue, we can expect more people to buy old, cheap boats because it's the only affordable housing available to them. And we can confidently expect more starry-eyed young or midlife people bitten by the sailing bug to take on more and bigger old wrecks than they can possibly maintain or handle, because those old wrecks are so temptingly cheap. So the derelict boat is not just the problem of the last owner. It's a problem building over decades, exacerbated by a confluence of social trends, and born of a failure to look far enough ahead. Perhaps all new boats back in the day should have paid a recycling fee at the time of first sale, which would have been banked with interest against the day when disposal would be required. Maybe all boaters should pay a yearly fee into a similar kitty, if we can trust our government not to raid the piggy bank to fund some other activity. Or perhaps we should think more seriously about providing jobs and housing for people who need them. Coulda, shoulda, wouldas aside, the problem started long ago, and its roots are deep and wide. Threatening or punishing the hapless last owner is not going to solve the problem. Kick out the liveaboards is not going to solve the problem. Like homeless people everywhere if evicted from one place, they will have to find somewhere else to exist. If forced off their boats, they'll leave their boats behind, abandoned, and going downhill even faster. What might begin to solve the problem is federal assistance with the costs of shipbreaking and recycling. If I were running the old boat disposal program, I'd be offering some kind of reward for bringing a decrepit vessel into the breaker's yard. Aging infrastructure, wrecked boats, they can be scenic and picturesque up to a point. But beyond that point, they're a public nuisance and an environmental and navigational hazard. We need to come up with a solution other than simply blaming the last owners. They're usually the people least capable of dealing with our vessels of concern. Just a reminder, the views and opinions heard on this program are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its staff, its membership, or any granting agency, but are those of the writer, producer, and guests. As always, thanks for listening.